0: Uh, If you've been walking with us this summer, then you know we're uh, on a a series called Finding Your Sea Legs, and this was inspired when uh, the staff went to Gibson's? Somewhere around there. I don't know. I just got on a ferry and let it take me where it took me. Um, But while we were on the ferry, kind of realizing that, you know, we're all on this journey. Um, A lot of us are in our own seasons of transition, whether it's, you know, coming back from the pandemic or changes with family, or even just finding a new summer rhythm um, with kids at home. Whatever it might be, a lot of us are in seasons of transition. And so Greg used the analogy of this ferry boat uh, when he introduced the series a couple of weeks ago. And he just gave us this picture of, you know, when you're on a ferry, there are some people who like to sit in their cars, wait for the ride to be over. There's those who are sitting uh, in the cafe, getting some food. I love the yam fries at the white slot get those every time, so I'm usually there. (laughs) Uh, Or some people stand at the front of the boat looking at what's to come, and some people stand at the back of the boat really wishing they weren't leaving whatever port they were just at. And so we all, you know, are on the same ferry, but many of us are experiencing this transition very differently. And that's the awesome thing about the scripture, is that the scripture is filled with stories of folks on a journey and experiencing things in a different way. Sometimes they're experiencing the exact same event, but they come to different conclusions, have different realizations throughout, or they're just in completely different eras and time zones and and all experiencing different things. So today we're gonna continue with that in talking about transition amidst crisis. I've called this sermon, finding our sea legs when everything goes wrong. So maybe you can identify with a season where you're like, if one more thing happen, if one more thing happens, I will break. And that's what we find with our characters today. So we're talking about the story of Ruth and Naomi. Maybe you're familiar with that? Maybe you're not? Well, hopefully you will be by the end of this. So to kick us off, you might be wondering why, when I said hello this morning, I asked you to tell your neighbor or whoever you're chatting with, your favorite series as a book, or er, series of books as a kid. And the reason I did that was because one of my favorite series uh, was the Series of Unfortunate Events. Maybe you've seen the movie, maybe you've read the books. Um, but basically, the plot is just as the title sounds. It is just a series of unfortunate events that happen to the three main characters, which are these three kids. So I'm just going to read you a bit of a summary of the first three books and uh, the summary of the Jim Carrey movie, because that's my favorite version of it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's great. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to read this off. And today, a lot of what I'm going to be doing is sharing stories, so hopefully you're in the story kind of mood, because that's what we're doing today. So, get on board. Okay, so, a series of unfortunate events begins with the Baudelaire father and mother dying in a fire. In one fell swoop, the three children, who are now orphans, served the main char- to be the main characters, and they lose the most important people in their lives and the source of protection and safety that they're supposed to have as children often in other tragic orphan stories like cinderella or harry potter once the children become orphans they're kind of released off to do new adventures so is not the case for the baudelaire children they are thrust into danger almost immediately and the rest of the f- series is basically just bad things happening to them so they can never find rest So first, they're entrusted to their closest relative, the obnoxious Count Olaf, that's what he's referred to as, who's only interested in the kids for the inheritance that they'll receive when they're 18. But he immediately loses custody of the children after unsuccessfully attempting to kill them with a train. So anyways, then they're shipped off to live with their dear uh, uncle, Dr. Montgomery, who is this cheerfully eclectic, uh, Herpologist? Herpologist? Which, I looked it up, that means he studies amphibians, so don't be weird, though. Uh, anyways, so they plan a trip to Peru, and this, is, this planning is all cut short, when Olaf, this evil guy, comes back disguised as a new man called Stefano, and he murders Monty, and frames a large snake as the killer. And the kids can see that this Count Olaf is clearly in disguise, but none of the adults believe them, and they're like, no, this is just another, this is a new person. But the kids are like, this is obviously Count Olaf. And that's basically how the story goes. Anyways, from there, so their uncle killed off. Then they're sent in with their Aunt Josephine, who is housebound and fears basically everything on the edge of a lake. So she has numerous irrational fears, such as doorknobs, fridges, realtors. But then a room of photographs in her house leads the children to discover some new truths about their parents. So they start to learn a bit more about where they're coming from. And they, and they like this ant enough, they feel safe enough, so they're happy there. But of course Count Olaf comes back, again disguised as a sailor this time. And they know it's him, but the ant doesn't believe them. Instead, she takes a liking to this sailor. Anyways, a big hurricane hits, and this new sailor, who is Olaf in disguise, tries to rescue, or rescues them by bringing them out on a boat, and surprise, surprise, he dumps the ant overboard, and she's eaten by leeches, so she's gone too. Anyways, the kids (laughs) don't manage to escape this time, so they're back with Count Olaf, who then, as a final attempt to gain this inheritance, stages a whole big play in which in the play there's a wedding which he forces and this is a really messed up story like now that i think about it he stages a wedding and he makes the the oldest daughter or the oldest orphan who's i think 13 at the time he makes her marry him in the play you know as a play but then secretly he has a judge there as one of the main characters as well so then he's like ha ha you're married to me (laughs) and i when you're Anyways, the kids outsmart him, they burn the document, and then Count Olaf is shipped off to prison, but he escaped again. And anyways, it just, on and on, like that, death after death, crazy event after crazy event, it's just one of those stories where you just, like, keep being in disbelief. And I don't know if it says something about me, because I love that kind of thing so much, you know, when, like, terrible things just keep happening, maybe I'm just, like, a sick sucker or something. But anyways... I think we all kind of like to see a bit of drama unfolding before our eyes, as long as it's not ours, you know, because it kind of puts our own stuff into perspective. And when it's dramatized like that, it's like, oh, this is so crazy. Like, this makes me feel better about all my trivial errors. At least no one's, like, trying to capture me for my inheritance. Unless that's happening to you, then I'm sorry about that. Um, but anyways, I was looking into the author, um, and, and he said... He admitted that he wrote this series because he was just so sick of how sappy and dumbed-down children's books seemed to be. They just tended to be so optimistic and unrealistic for the real world, which he hated. So he was like, how about we just make things as bad as they can be, and then kids will at least be like, hey, at least I'm not one of those orphans, you know? <laughs> Anyways, I think it's funny. At the beginning of his first book, he says, the intro line is, if you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other book. And that's how he introduces the series. In another book, he starts by giving an in-depth description of the water cycle, which he says, it's far better to learn this than learning what became of the Baudelaire orphans as the rushing waters of the stricken stream carry them away from the mountains. And I, I like that. So he's, he's giving us like a, a hint of what's coming. It's all terrible. Anyways. That's that. And why do I tell you that? Well, I tell you that because history and cultures and even pop culture is full of stories and folklore and fables of supposedly good, righteous people enduring ongoing suffering. I think of the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Maybe you've seen that. But there's this main character, and bad things just keep happening. Or there's more serious ones. I think there's one called The Pursuit of Happiness with Uh, Will Smith and it's about this father and son who are just down on their luck and they can't stand back up. We even have um, stories from the Babylonians. So in ancient civilization, there's this one poem, I'm not even going to try to say the real name, but they call it the poem of the righteous sufferer, which was written thousands and thousands of years before Jesus. There's this one called the debate between a man and his soul, which was written in Egypt way 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 long before jesus so we're talking stories that have just been around forever that talk about this problem of why why do bad things happen why do bad things happen and they're dramatized to i think you know make us feel better about everything that happens in our life and we have the book of job as well in the bible maybe you're familiar with that but it's about this man who just can't catch a break so we have stories like this because a lot of life is spent dealing with the good and the bad. So it would be silly just to read stories about good things happening because a lot of the time, we're trying to face other things as well. And today, like I said, we're talking about two women who face a season of enormous loss and crisis. And we're going to talk about their unique responses to that loss and that crisis as well. So what I love about the book of Ruth, and why I thought it's so fitting to bring into the series of learning how to find our sea legs, is because it's a story that a lot of us can relate to in the way that nothing crazy happens. There's no God's booming voice down from the heavens fixing a problem. There's no, you know, miraculous healing. There's no moment where the sun stands still. It's just a normal story of loss and pain and a journey of trying to figure out where God is in the midst of that. It's a story of a woman who had a run of really, really bad luck and found themselves asking where God was in the midst of all of this. So there's lots of stories that are about God's miraculous healing in the Bible and we can totally talk about those and what I'm talking about today is not to discredit being like, yeah, miracles totally happen. But I wanted to talk about this today because more often in my life, it's been like I'm in a season of like, like what? What am i supposed to do like when is this going to be over god i've been praying i have faith but i'm still in this mess and where are you and so not to be discouragement saying like life sucks deal with it kiddo <laughs> it's just to say that god is still there and that's what i hope we kind of get out of today so i'm gonna do try and do three things today and hopefully you know if, if i do two to three that'd be great but hopefully i do three to three uh so my three p- points of today is One, we become more familiar with the story of Ruth and Naomi. So if you can be more familiar at the end of it, that'd be great, thanks. Uh, Just kidding. (laughs) Two, uh, we look at what their story suggests about God's character in the midst of great crisis and transition. And three, we get some prompts to reflect on our own lives, what's going on with us, and as it relates to finding God in our own trials and seasons of great loss and transition hopefully I can do those three things for you today. So where our story starts, the Book of Ruth, because I'm a nerd, I gotta give you some history and backstory about how this book came to be. So this book is uh, read in the, a festival called Shavuot, which is the festival of weeks in the Jewish culture. So that happens about seven weeks after the Passover meal and it's to celebrate the grain harvest, which we'll learn about why that's important later. Um, but basically, the, the story of Ruth is read over and over again during the celebration for two reasons. So one, it reminds us that God, you know, gives us the harvest. That's why it's read at the harvest, because we'll, we'll get to that later. But two, it's to show how God's provision often comes out of a place of suffering and poverty. So it's to say that we have the harvest, and God is generous, because later there's going to be a harvest in the story of Ruth. But it didn't come without great suffering and great loss. It's also interesting that this book is read in one of, uh, in one of the significant festivals uh, in Israel. What's interesting is because Ruth is, will learn, a foreigner. She's not even an Israelite. She's a random that was somehow brought into Israel's story by God to do some great things. So that's why that's interesting is because it's, it's read in this important festival in Israel. It's not even about an Israelite necessarily. So that's kind of cool. But anyways, the point is, uh, authors and scholars think that this book was written to show that while Israel is God's chosen people in the Old Testament, God wanted to keep teaching them throughout this Old Testament period that, hey, you're special, but you're not that special. I get to choose, and there's other people I want to bring into this story as well. So God here widening who Israel knew as God's people, which is pretty cool. Okay, so... I'm going to do exactly what all my preaching professors told me not to do. And I'm going to try and summarize a whole book, not just like a verse, as, a, as like a preaching topic. But I think it's going to be fine, so just bear with me. Uh, anyways, okay, so if you want to open up to the Book of Ruth in your Bible or your phone, that's great. And you can kind of track along with me. I'm going to pull out some verses that uh, I think couldn't be said any better, so I'll do that. Um, but you can just kind of track along with me. So, Ruth one one we learn that this happens all it says in the days when the judges ruled so the days when the judges ruled was a dark and difficult time period that we can read about in the book of judges that's right before ruth but basically this time period is just marked by leader after leader getting it wrong because they're power hungry and don't really know how to lead so that's what we learn. it's also set in this patriarchal culture so patriarchy is just this big word to describe a society where like, men are the top dog and everyone else falls underneath. So that's kind of the setting that this is being written in, which means that women are often defined by the men they're connected to. So it's really interesting actually that the book of Ruth is even a part of the Bible because it's about women and it's written from the point of view of women, which was not really a common thing in patriarchal, patriarchal culture. So it's kind of like, why is this even written in the first place? Also, why is this read, written, read, read, written? Why is this read (laughs) at one of the most important festivals of Jewish culture? It's about women. So that's kind of interesting if you're a nerd like me. Anyways, so the Book of Ruth starts with a nice family from Israel fleeing because of famine. So these are folks who uh, worship God or Yahweh as God's referred to in the Old Testament. And they flee Bethlehem because there's no food there. So, in an act of desperation to protect their family, they get out of there and move to a place called Moab in hopes of a better life for them, in hopes for food, in hopes for prosperity. And they flee to Moab, and that's kind of like modern day Jordan, just so you can think about that in your mind. But what's ironic here is that Bethlehem actually translates to bread house, like literally. Bet means bread, Lachan means. House, oh no, no no, I got that mixed up. Bet means house and vahem means bread. So literally means house of bread. So it's kind of funny that they're fleeing, there's no bread there. So that's kind of funny. And We'll see that uh, a bit more in this story and how there's kind of word plays here. Anyways, they flee as an act to save their family. And there's a family of four. So it's the dad, Elimelech, Naomi, the mom, and then Malon and Kilian. And their names are also significant. You're gonna get so many fun facts out of this talk, so you're welcome. <laughs> Anyways, El means God is king. Well, if God is king, why are they leaving the place that God is supposed to be king over? Question one, Naomi means pleasant, and that will be funny later on. Uh, son Malon means sickness, and Kileon means wasting away, which we'll find out why that's important later. Anyways, these two sons marry two Moabite women And because they're from Israel, they're not supposed to marry outside of Israel's people, so that kind of raises one red flag, like, okay, we get that you married out of desperation because you had to flee, but why are you marrying some randos? And then two, also raises the question, why are the women marrying these men because they're refugees, which means they have nothing with them? So it begs the question, are these women just kind of like, that's the best they could do as people who have nothing in the first place? which kind of makes his women feel a little bit even more insignificant because they couldn't do better than people who had nothing, which is kind of interesting. Okay, so we're in the times of the judges. They flee Bethlehem because there's no food, even though it's called the bread house. There's no bread. And first thing, all of the men die. Sad. So just as we got to know them, they're gone. Which makes sense why their names are Malin and Killian, Sickness Wasting Away, They're Dead. So that leaves Naomi, Ruth, and the other daughter-in-law, Orpah, to be manless in need of help. Which is significant in this patriarchal society where a woman's worth was only, was only determined by what man she was attached to. So all the men are dead. So literally, they are worse. They, are worse. they, are, they have no meaning because who can protect them? Who can provide for them? So anyways, that's where we're at. Pretty bleak, if you ask me. So in light of all this, because danger poses, then if they're without a man, Naomi, the mother-in-law, whose name means pleasant, decides to head back to Bethlehem, hearing that the famine is over and that there might be a little bit of bread at the bread house. So she decides to go, and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, pack their bags and say, we'll join you. We don't want you to be alone. Yeah, we'll, we'll come with you. And Naomi begs them to stay. She says, I have no status, I have no place, I have nothing to offer you. Even if somehow I had a kid today, you'd be dead before he was old enough to marry you. So she says, I have nothing. You guys, you gotta stay here, just return back. Go Go see your families go be in your culture I don't want you to move to a foreign place and not know anyone just leave it's fine I got it anyways Orpah which maybe you haven't heard of her that's because she turns back so she doesn't really make the cut in the story also funny her mean her name means um neck turning so it's kind of like this pun so it's like she was like okay yeah bye so she leaves anyways but we can't blame her it makes sense like she didn't know the culture of Bethlehem She didn't have any family. She didn't even worship the same gods that were in Bethlehem. So though it's kind of funny that she just ditched pretty easily, it's also like, yeah, realistically, I would too, you know? Anyways, Ruth, whose name means friend and companion, vows to stay with Naomi. She says, I don't care what you say, I'm staying. In fact, in verse 16, 17, she says, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me first. So Ruth basically signs up for a doomed life because she's going to a place where she knows no one. She knows not the culture. She only has this old mother-in-law with her who also, sidebar, is devastated because they just lost everyone. So they're helpless and they're tired and they're grieving and they're trying to make all these moves. And things just are not working out for them. So anyway, she willingly signs up to be the epitome of the most vulnerable member in Israelite society. In some of the Old Testament laws, we read about special provisions for The poor, the widowed, the orphan, and often women, too, who are lowest of society. And here Ruth is signing up to be all of those. So she's a foreigner. She's poor. She's a widow. Maybe she's an orphan. Like, does she not have a family to go back to? And she's a woman. So she is, like, just signing up to be dirt, basically. And on top of that, she's leaving all that she's ever known for a place that would her as an outsider so she's not even anticipating a warm welcome however she says in the verse I just read your people will be my people and your God will be my God so scholars kind of take this as Ruth's kind of convergent story as Ruth kind of committing to Yahweh or God as yeah I'll follow God which is interesting because God didn't actually seem to be that good for them at this point because husbands got killed off dad got killed off famine So even even the reason why Ruth would be cool with, you know, taking on Yahweh as her God is a bit of a question mark, because, like, what what was Naomi's God doing for them? Like, not helping, that's for sure. So I think that's interesting. But it's clear that for some reason, Ruth saw something in maybe the way Naomi lived, maybe in the way the family lived, that was tempting just enough to get past all of the devastation that had gone before to say that I think maybe this is the way that I'm supposed to go, which is pretty incredible, after all the terrible things that happened. Anyways, they get to Bethlehem, and things are not good. Naomi is completely down and out, so much so that she tells everyone, don't call me Naomi anymore, that means pleasant, call me Mara, which means bitter. And if I was to cast this in a movie, I would probably do like a merle street and she'd be like in a long gown and she'd be smoking a cigarette and she'd be like call me mara because it means bitter <laughs> so she's basically like i am bitter don't even call me pleasant that's not my name anymore i am mara so she changes her name because she's just absolutely devastated about what has happened and they get to bethlehem and it's not any better because they have nothing there uh she says Call me Mara, in verse 20, uh, because of chapter one. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me and brought misfortune upon me. So here, Naomi starts outwardly processing some serious theology, and becomes almost unrecognizable in her grief. Because something to remember here is that in ancient Near Eastern cultures, basically you wanted to worship the best God. So you wanted to worship the God that was gonna provide the best harvest, that was gonna provide you with resources to get by, that was gonna provide you with a big family. And here Naomi is saying, Yahweh, I thought you were that God that was gonna provide for me. I held up my head and end of the deal. I did what I could to follow you and you're not holding up your end of the deal. So that's where Naomi's at. So Ruth then is trying to think of ways to get them by, to get them food so that they don't starve and die. So she has this idea to go glean in the fields. And gleaning is just another big word that we'll learn for fun today. Oh, party, nice. Um, So she's gonna glean and gleaning, you're learning so much today, is uh, this provision in the Bible. It's kind of like Israel's welfare system. And it's where there's a rule that you can only go through your field once. You can't pick up any leftovers. And you have to leave the corners and edges untouched. So you have to leave those for people that need it. Which is a pretty cool law. It's basically just saying you have to leave enough for people that can't provide for themselves. So while this rule or this law is great at providing for people, it was also, though, like kind of a shameful thing to do. Like You weren't just like, yeah, I don't need to work. I'm just going to glean. No, 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 no. Because A, you'd barely get anything. It'd be like the stuff that people had stepped on. But B, to be out there on the corner of a field, everyone would know that you couldn't provide. So it was a bit of a shame thing. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to do it. It's fine. I don't care. Kind of like dumpster diving. She was like, we're so desperate. What else do I have to lose? We've already lost everything. Ha <laughs> ha. That's where she was at. Anyway, she ends up gleaning in a field of someone named Boaz, who becomes very important. Anyways, he takes a liking to her and he even goes so far to say as, you know what, you don't have to lean on the edges, you can follow my hired hands and pick up whatever they drop immediately. And you know what, you can drink from our water and you can eat our food as well. So crazy, like who would do that? Just some random that they just met. But Boaz sensed in Ruth something special, obviously. So Ruth goes back to Naomi, Tell her, tells her, hey, I met this guy named Boaz. He was really nice. He gave us all this extra wheat to glean or this barley. And Naomi says, perfect. That is actually your like distant cousin, twice removed or whatever, on my side. Which is great news because of more Israel laws. So there's a law called the Kinsman Redeemer Law and levirate Marriage Law. So Kinsman Redeemer means that Um, If you for some reason couldn't afford your life anymore and you needed to sell land as a way to get by Your closest relative that was able had to buy it from you. So that's great Lever marriage law is basically if your first spouse dies Their brother or closest relative has to marry you because they have to provide for your family So it's kind of just like a way of making families help each other when you think about it like actually happening It's kind of creepy like like (laughs) the thought of, you know, like marrying one of Cody's brothers, if Cody died, but I don't know, I don't think that would work. Anyways, it was what, it it was what happened, so that no one was lost, and no one was left without. So Naomi says, perfect, he's a relative, we got to set this up so that he buys our land, so that we have some money, and we got to set up so he marries you, girl, and then we'll be set to go. So I'm jumping ahead because I want to keep moving here. But basically Naomi tells Ruth to do some crazy bold things and basically just go propose to Boaz, say like, hey Boaz, will you marry me? And long story short, he does, they work it out. And um, by the end of this story, and by the way, this is happening over the course of probably years. Like this isn't just like a, everyone died and then like two weeks later they were married and happy again. It was probably like years of starving and hunger and pain. But by the end, Boaz, this family member who is wealthy, has a field, took care of them, ends up marrying Ruth and they have a son and they name him Obed. And we learn that Obed, generations later, is like the great-grandfather of King David. So King David, who maybe you've heard about, is a big deal in Israel. He came from this foreigner woman out of an act of desperation, in fact, Everything was so uh I guess incredible by the end that the women in town sing of Ruth as better than seven sons for Naomi. And so Naomi after all this loss is ended up being blessed by this foreign woman who was stubborn and wouldn't leave her alone. So that's our story. Hopefully that made sense. So that's purpose one. Hopefully you're a little more familiar with the story of Ruth and Naomi now. But what does this story mean? What does it have to do with a series of unfortunate events and what I was going, rambling on about earlier? Well, the point I'm trying to make this morning, and like I was saying in this series of unfortunate events intro, is that A, bad things happen and it's just the way it is. And B, sometimes God doesn't do the instant miraculous thing we ask for. Because if you'll notice, God had really no explicit interaction in the events I just described. There was no moment where God was saying, Hey, Ruth, you got to stick with Naomi. I'll provide for you. It's okay. And he wasn't telling Naomi, like, Oh, hey, you should send Ruth into this field, and you should do this, so that everything works out. It was just Ruth and Naomi living life the best they could. But God was obviously involved. And we can't even question that. So though God didn't do the instant miraculous thing that Ruth and Naomi probably wanted, but they were probably like, "Um, can you just bring them back to life? That'd be way easier than trying to figure this all out. God was still there. So it kind of makes me squirm to say God doesn't always do the instant miraculous thing that we want because I think a part of me wants that. Like A part of me wants to just be like, hey, I have a list of things God I'd like you to address right now and that would be great, thank you very much. But Ruth is painting a bit of a different story and probably a pretty relatable story. So you might be thinking this morning, Jess, this is nice and all, but also, when I signed up for this whole, you know, Jesus thing, I thought I was signing up for like you know, a bit of a nicer life. Like a bit of like a, you know, things are going to work out kind of life. And I think we could all laugh because I think we all know, like, that is not the case. Ruth even signed up for this life with God, like, having just lost everything. And still she was like, yeah, I guess. Sounds okay. So I'm not sure that God's promise to God's people is to fix everything right here, right now. As certainly wasn't the case for Naomi and Ruth. But what I'm saying is that what Ruth... And Naomi show us is that God's promise and the continuing narrative that we find throughout Scripture is that God is faithful and God is present and which is why maybe when I was describing the story of Ruth and Naomi though I was never really mentioning God you probably could sense where God was in all of that orchestrating things behind the scenes I didn't have to say God did this God said this it was just you could sense it right So it's funny how God's hardly mentioned, but God's obviously present. And is that enough for us? I think hypothetically, I'm like, yeah, sure, that sounds nice, God being present. But I know that in my deepest moments of agony and questioning, that doesn't always feel like enough. I know for me, I've struggled for many years with this chronic back pain that came from and attempted a career of being a ballerina. And I think there are so many moments in this journey where I just kind of expected like God would heal, like God would be like, oh yeah, here, sorry, zap, you're healed. Like That was kind of what I always expected. And maybe it will happen, that would be awesome. But what has been more comforting for me at least than the prospects of like really hoping for immediately healing and being let down over and over again was something that one of my mentors said to me, which was just, but isn't God still present with you? And is is that enough? And I think sometimes it's not. If you have your Bibles open, I'll just get you to flip to Isaiah 43, 2. I'm just gonna read apart from the message here, but I love this verse because I think it captures this perfectly. So Isaiah 43, 2. It says, when you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you won't go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. So what I love about this is this is kind of God speaking in the book of Isaiah. And, you know, the the bad situations that whoever he's talking to is in, so being in over their head in rough waters between rock and a hard place. God doesn't offer like a when you're in over your head, I'm going to come up behind you and I'll lift up to the stars. God says, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you won't go down. So it's not saying, I'm going to always come and scoop you. God is saying, no, I'm going to help keep you afloat. I'm going to be with you. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end. So God making new paths. God will make a way. Totally. So what, what I've been trying to say is what I love about the story of Ruth is that opposed to so many other incredible stories of scripture where there is that miracle moment, the walking on the water, Jesus healing people, because that is totally a part of our story too. Instead, the book of Ruth is unique because it explores the interplay of a life lived kind of in suffering, but God is also there too. So it explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human actions and will as well. So it's a story of God using God's people's obedience to bring about goodness and life and new beginnings. And I think Ruth and Naomi are an amazing example of that, of being faithful to their best abilities and God coming through for them. So let me just wrap up here, you're probably all itching to get going with your Sundays. So we've looked at the story of Ruth and Naomi. Hopefully you're a little bit familiar with that. We just chat a little bit about God's character in the midst of seasons of trial and loss. So God's character as being present. And now we're just gonna think about ourselves a little bit as how we can live this out of it. So a word that repeats a lot throughout the story of Ruth um, and a, like a theme that most scholars say can characterize the book of Ruth is this Hebrew word called chesed. Can you say that? Chesed. chesed. You got to give the Hased. Ch- chesed. chesed. Yes. Awesome. So this word is used three times in the book, uh, once describing God's lack of chesed, describing Ruth's chesed, and then also describing God's like evident chesed. And so it's best translated as not only love, but like loyalty and kindness. So it's a love that is present and sure, one that sticks around. So it represents a lifestyle of devotion and loyalty to whatever subject the devotion and loyalty should be towards. So we know this word because of how it's used about God throughout the Bible. So it always describes God's relationship with God's people as it's stemming from God because God doesn't let God's people down. God is faithful, God brings people back, God is always loyal, even though sometimes it takes years to see, God is loyal, and that's what this word has said gets at. So it's not like, a, like a, you know, a sexy kind of love, like, oh yeah, God's just like gonna be the, the white knight coming in, scooping us up, the dambles in distress. It's like this constant friendship and deep care for someone which we see even in Ruth's own actions as she refuses to leave Naomi because she loves her in such a loyal way. So, so yeah, what can we learn? Naomi teaches us the critical importance of asking where God is in our situations. If it wasn't for Naomi and her doubt, we would feel awkward about us crying and being sad and sometimes complaining through our pain, which it just, it happens. But it shows that even at her lowest moments, Naomi is somehow a light bearer, somehow bears enough of God's character that Ruth sticks with her. Because it would be just way easier for Ruth to be like, you are a real downer, I'm out of here, but Ruth stays. So even at Naomi's lowest, she's asking God, where are you in all this? And bringing people along, along the journey with her. Ruth shows us how to live out the next stage of grief and chaos and loss and transition which is this faithful loyalty to a way when sometimes we don't even know how it will turn out. So, Ruth, it's a gutsy risk taker who puts herself in harm's way for the sake of those she loves. So, I guess in our own lives, I'm thinking, you know, if just thinking about a place of chaos or tra- crisis or transition for you. For me, I was talking about my back injury and how I've wrestled with that for many years. But I guess a question I'd love to leave with you is a Ruth question and a Naomi question that you can maybe ponder and wonder about in your own situations, in your own context, how this is touching down for you. But my Naomi question is, how might you realize God's said in your current sea? Bringing back the finding our sea legs. So whatever sea you're in, what might God's said look like? What does loyal love look like in your situation? And a Ruth question, which is, what is God? what does God's said mean for how you live? How can we be like Ruth? And even amidst loss and chaos and transition, how are we being lights for God and showing loyal love like God does for us? So just wrapping up here, Cody and Rob, feel free to come back up. Ruth is showing us that God is working through the lives of ordinary and insignificant people to advance God's work in the world, whether they see it or not. And we have the opportunity when chaos comes, or when all these series of unfortunate events happen, to both seriously reflect on how we think about God, which matures our faith, and be to live out of what seems like bizarre obedience and love sometimes. So for Naomi and Ruth, they never heard the answers to the questions they had about all their suffering. Even though things worked out in the end, there was no explanation for the loss that they had still. Like, that didn't just go away. But their struggle takes them into a deeper understanding of God's heart for them. Even though in the world's eyes, they were women, they were foreign, they had left and come back, God still provided, which is... I think a feeling we can always, most of us can identify with, this feeling of, of it's, it's too far gone, how can I come back? But God always brings us back, so that's all for me guys. Um, I probably won't come back up, so Cody, if you want to pray at the end, that would be great. Go in Chesed. Go in.